Hello. In our contemporary style of living that seems destined to pace itself ever quicker before showing indications of returning to a more languid rate, we all have calls upon our time that, in the interests of maintaining our own sanity, we inevitably need to prioritise. It is thus no shame to admit that certain events may, well, just fall off our list as being unimportant or even irrelevant in our busy personal regimes. And thus, we could be forgiven for not noticing that the 950th anniversary of the Battle of Hastings recently passed us by on its way to millennial festivities in 2066 that many of us will most likely not even be around to acknowledge, let alone commemorate. In truth, there were various events celebrating, if celebrating is the right word, one of the most significant dates in English history, and our own Dudley Archives Department was doubtless not alone in offering an interpretation of a momentous year that heralded the death of three kings, the transition from Anglo-Saxon to Norman, and two of the greatest creations of the era, the Bayeux Tapestry and the Liber de Wintonia, or Book of Winchester, more commonly known as the Domesday Book. The tapestry depicts the events leading up to the Norman invasion, but it's the manuscript of the Great Survey of much of England and parts of Wales, completed in 1086 by order of William the Conqueror, that contains provisions of particular relevance to Dudley and the surrounding region. For many, including me, whose childhood introduction to this epic battle was limited to the academically not too rigorous but hugely comical masterpiece 1066 and all that by W.C. Seller and R.J. Yateman, this, depending on your perspective, might be considered either a good thing or a bad thing. A caveat that will mean all the more if you've read the book and recall its humorous absolutism in deciding if a thing, such as a king, was good or bad. Yet it is often the case, and the Battle of Hastings offers an apposite example, where these things of way back in history that have long passed from, or perhaps never even entered our consciousness, may yet impinge upon our present-day character, personality, and even our psyche, and which we ignore at our peril. Ah, I think I'd better explain my reasoning behind that one. Okay. While southwards of the barn, my view extends over the Black Mountains and beyond, the aspect from the northern side is curtailed by the hills of Brilly that rise steeply to a huge windswept common past Hargis Ridge. And if you have a dusty LP of the same name, Hargis Ridge, in your vintage record collection alongside tubular bells, yes, musician Mike Oldfield used to live here. The bendy little road then drops gently down into the delightful little market town of Kington. Beyond Kington lies the village of Pembridge, which, though only a few miles distant, is way beyond my view, but not in this context, my ruminations. Pembridge is nowadays... A small rural village largely comprising delightful timbered houses, shops and pubs, and is rightly considered a gem along the black and white trail that's a magnet for tourists yearning to experience oldie-worldie times gone by in abundance. But it wasn't always thus, and for centuries Pembridge was a thriving town with royal connections, and according to the entry in Domesday, there's that book again, it was acquired by a nobleman named Harold Godwinson when he became Earl of Hereford in 1055, although the monks of St Guthlax persisted for years in their claim that he actually stole it from them. Earl Harold later became King Harold, and was the one who came second to William the Conqueror in the confrontation that was destined to change the course of English history 
as the Anglo-Saxon way of life was, despite various skirmishes and uprisings for several years afterwards, increasingly subsumed by Norman influence. But not all facets succumbed, and indeed there is much from those pre-Norman days that still extant, not least in our own local history. And we're able to nail this down more specifically to one particular span of time that was itself heavily influenced by the local topography and geography. The Black Country was once dense forest and chase with some quite formidable contours, so it's little wonder that the population of ancient times saw little point in tackling the terrain when it was just as easy to go round. The Romans certainly thought as much with their Watling Street of AD 50 or so, now the A5, skirting well north of Wolverhampton before heading off towards Viriconium near Shrewsbury. The Danes were similarly uninspired to make too much of an effort, the Danelaw being at its closest over in the east and northwards beyond Watling Street, although they did at least give it a go and fought several battles, most notably the one recorded in Anglo-Saxon Chronicles as being on the 5th of August AD 910. Historians can't actually agree on the accuracy of this date, nor whether it took place near Wensfield, or Wodensfield after the pagan god Woden. So it's also known as the Battle of Tettenhall, where the northern part beyond Tettenhall is still to this day known as Danes Court. Wherever the front line, we do know the battle saw the Allied forces of Mercia and Essex repel an army of Northumbrian Vikings, one of the last such great armies of the era and led to the deaths of the Danish kings Eowils and Hialfden. Whether this or smaller confrontations at Willenall and Wombourne, bear in mind these all involved a relatively sparse populace, actually even took place in the location or manner described in the chronicles, there's little evidence that the Danes ever settled to any great degree in the inhospitable black country. But what of the victorious Anglo-Saxons? Victorious, that is, for 150 years or so, until the arrival of Harold. Well, that's certainly where the good folk of the black country can source their heritage. And the evidence for this is twofold. To wit, our unique dialect and our place names. As for dialects, well, though far higher authorities than I can give chapter and verse on this, I'm personally drawn by little more than the expressions such as Bist our kid, when you been? Bist? Been? Hmm, now just stretch those grey sills and recall your school day language lessons. Ich bin, du bist. Classic Germanic declension. And this comes with time-honoured derivations too. Much of our dialect is genuinely oldy English, and it's notable that Chaucer's Canterbury Tales of the 14th century have a direct correlation with the Mercian dialect that to this day is intertwined with the vernacular that I speak fluently at least when I'm back in the air of my birth, that is, though I must be circumspect in doing so anywhere near the bottom unless they might not understand a word I say. Yes, dialect is an indicator. But for me, it's more the place names that quantify our roots in that legalistic phrase, beyond all reasonable doubt. When the hardy Saxons cut their clearings in the great forests that cover the land, they called them lees or lees. Since it was the practice to name the settlements after their leader, we thus have Dudder having his own Lee. Similarly, the leaders Cradder, Sedder, and so forth, from which we have the modern towns of Duddali, Cradderly, and Sedderly, or Sedgley, of course. And for good measure, a clearing in what was once the mighty Pinsnet Chase, now of course Pensnet, is nowadays simply known as the Lees at Brocknell.
So, compelling evidence for the derivation of our language, our hometowns, our very roots lying in ancient Anglo-Saxon. And as for the Norman conquest ever destroying our culture, well, I'll get a brawly old fust. And when one fully appreciates the sentiment behind that apparently innocent but utterly defiant piece of doggerel, well, then you're proper, what are we? Enjoy your black country, and do join me again soon for more Tales from the Bar.